Welcome to the Demisery Podcast, where I, Liz Hansen, read essays I've written about confronting and moving on from loss, grief, and shame. My hope is to normalize conversations around miscarriage, mental health, and all kinds of losses and traumas that compound the older we get. After my own miscarriages, I wanted nothing more than to hear stories from women about how they made it through. So here's mine. Know that you're not alone and that there are many healing paths to pursue. Thanks for listening. Content warning. Topics include miscarriage, infant mortality, grief, and raw freaking emotion. Anywhere. Cairo, Egypt, 1986. I'm sitting in Mrs. Naguib's social studies class, and I feel dumb. I never feel dumb in class, but she's challenging us. She's asking us sixth graders to be critical thinkers, and I'm nervous because I don't know the answer like I usually do. I can't reply with a memorized fact. I must reply with thought. What is a tool? She's asking us what technology is. I think that's what she was getting at. But beyond that, what are the implications of technology? Going back to cavemen, rocks. What is a rock? Is a rock a tool? And I remember her asking us to look up words in the dictionary that we didn't know how to spell. She asked us to build mock pyramids using the same tools as the ancient Egyptians. A pencil and paper and no rulers, apparently. Or was it scissors we couldn't use? Like she was asking us to invent geometry for ourselves. She made me realize there were so many ways of knowing. That classroom was the place of many awakenings, being challenged and the rush of that. It's also where I was when we got evacuated because of violent police riots, only to come back a week later to the classroom in chaos as we left it mid-tragedy. There were abandoned chairs shoved away from their desks with open books and writing on the chalkboard. And I think about that a lot. How can you rediscover things that have been forgotten and left behind? What does the forgotten look like? Like a surge of energy tinged with karmic chaos. And you can see it in the room still. The energy we had when we were told we had to get up and go. Like a ruin. Or a pre-ruin, I guess it would be. Not yet ruined. But it might have gone that way if we hadn't been able to come back and witness. Witness time stilled and then animate it once again. If you suffer continual loss, are you lost? I grew up moving to a new country every couple of years, and the uprootings took their toll and became ingrained. I put up barriers to deflect loneliness, even rejected or sabotaged love and friendship, certain of the eventual ripping away due to circumstances beyond me. I've lost homes, friends, routines, comfort, countries, schools, neighborhoods. But lost isn't really the right word. Left behind, maybe? I know where all the lost things were. I just couldn't get to them, and they couldn't get to me. They existed along meridians halfway around the world that I longed for and thought about all the time. Imagining daily routines from the last place we lived, staring at old house keys, visualizing old bedrooms, reciting old phone numbers. I thought honoring those memories might conjure a magical portal back to the comfort of before, 
To this day, when people ask me where I'm from, I get nervous and don't know what to say. December 2015. I'm finally in a lasting relationship and rooting down in San Francisco with Matthew. We've made a sweet home filled with his furniture and our art. We are struggling to start a family, and then I lose another pregnancy, the third one. There's that word again, lost. I didn't lose a pregnancy. I know right where it is, gone, in some medical waste dump. And the habit finds me fast, the ghosts of potential gnaw at me, and I'm in a parallel universe again, projecting out of my current misery into a fantasy where the baby is born and healthy and would be a month old. We are a family with a stroller and a car seat. We care for this tiny human that has all our best and worst traits. And that's when I imagine I finally feel at home, nurturing another little human. When I was 30, in 2004, my parents took me to my remote equatorial birthplace in the highlands of Irian Jaya, what is now called West Papua, Indonesia. They said they were taking me home to Timbagapura, and none of us questioned that home could be a place I didn't remember. I wanted the supposed homecoming to be a fix, a missing puzzle piece, the place that would show me how to be from somewhere once and for all. In 1974, my father was working for Freeport, an American company that was mining copper in Timbagapura, 10,000 feet up a remote mountain in New Guinea where Papuan tribes were still living at a Stone Age level of technology. His job was a thankless one, to be a liaison between the indigenous people whose land was effectively stolen to be mined, and Freeport, who in turn wanted their mining operations to proceed without disruption from the people they displaced. In the middle of this mess, I was born, the first white baby, according to my parents, a piece of trivia that I used to brag about until I learned about colonialism. How could first whiteness lead to any kind of good? It's like being the harbinger of doom. In 2004, we gained special entry into West Papua, which bans journalists and human rights workers. When you get there, you begin to understand why. This home that I was returning to was now the site of the world's largest gold mine, and as a result, a heavily militarized zone with security checkpoints and tanks and men with guns. And the military protecting the mining operations are not from Papua. They are ethnically different, mostly from Java. They look down on Papuans who are disparaged as savage cannibals. So first the missionaries came and converted Papuans. Then the mining company came and stole their land and displaced tribes. And then the military came to intimidate and suppress the Papuan independence movement. I was struck by the irony that Papuans were forced to move from the mining area, but it was there that I was chasing an idea of home for myself. The idea of home feels so tenuous to me. It's not tied to a house or a city. It might be many places, and it might be about people. But after we arrived, I certainly knew I wasn't going to find it in Tembagapura. The questions became, where does anyone belong? Who's deciding where people end up? And how can one belong to a place at all? We moved to Cairo, Egypt in the summer of 1985, just before I started sixth grade. I think of it as the summer of mushroom clouds and AIDS. That's what greeted my jet lag when we arrived. All of our belongings were on a cargo shipment from our last home in Madrid, inching along the Mediterranean in some rusty shipping container. And for months, we lived out of our suitcases. 
I had no books or toys to occupy those desolate midnight hours in this strangely furnished temporary apartment my father had been staying in that preceded the arrival of me, the arrival of me, my mom, two older brothers, and two giant dogs. We had Newsweek and Time magazines, several weeks worth, and that's what I poured over in a sleepless state. Cover stories of Rock Hudson dying of AIDS in France and of the 40th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima. Images of hollowed-out faces, of grief, of pain, of uncertainty spread over both stories. Clock faces stopped at the exact sound the bomb went off. Rock Hudson blurry and frail in pastels and sunglasses. Human shadows etched into concrete and the concrete sidewalk outside of a French clinic. We arrived into Cairo at night. Well-practiced at moving, our family was expert with all things airports, passports, new foods, and languages, and Egypt was our new adventure. I remember the hot summer air. I remember an Egyptian man in a galabea helping us with our luggage, and the worry when the dogs emerged on the luggage carousel, tipped over in their giant cages, and how disoriented and scared they were. I remember how glad my dad was that we had finally joined him. I remember driving from the airport through the city to our apartment in Mahdi and thinking, I didn't know it would be like this. But what was this? I think it was the density of cars and buildings. It was the exposed cinder block architecture that dominated. It was the heat. It was unlike anything I'd seen before. Mercedes-Benzes sharing the road with donkey-pulled carts full of garbage. It was ancient and raw, so old and so unfinished, and it was beige. At least the apartment we lived in at first was very, very beige. We lived in an apartment provided by my dad's employer. The place was clean and minimal, had all the furniture and kitchen supplies we'd need, but like a hotel, none of the personal touches. We weren't allowed to drink or brush our teeth with tap water. Amoebic dysentery was the risk, so any water that entered our bodies had to be boiled or bottled. Boiled water tastes terrible. It's flaky with sediment, and to make it palatable, we would add more sediment, orange or pineapple tang. Dad gave us the apartment tour. We were shown our bedrooms. We were shown the tang, and then we settled before the TV where we learned that every night he watched Knots Landing, this from a man who prefers sports and westerns. The American soap opera about marital discord in the L.A. suburbs was like mother's milk for my homesick father. It was the only English-language show on Egyptian TV, along with the evening news delivered by British-accented newscasters. So changed he was, drinking unnaturally orange fluids before the histrionics of Joan Van Ark. My mother was disgusted, shocked that this American schlock was allowed to air on Egyptian television, This is why Americans are hated, I remember her saying. They think we're all like that. She was, of course, referring to the slutty, alcoholic, backstabbing greed that dominated the plot line. When I see photos of babies on Facebook, I feel like I'm living in a demented soap opera. The fruits of other geriatric pregnancies. I want to tell my friends their babies keep reminding me I don't have one. They taunt me and hypnotize me with their chubby cheeks and goofy grins. Do I still want to grow one inside me? Can I handle another loss? I can't fathom another pregnant roller coaster. I skip time, hang out too long in the world of the baby having survived. It's three months old now, smiling. It has Matthew's sweet eyes. After two years of living in Cairo, my father was unfortunately let go from his job. In the summer of 1987, we moved to Litchfield Park, Arizona. 
a suburb of Phoenix. The family's international intrigue was over. We were to be U.S. citizens in the U.S. now. We were all depressed, and I was in for the worst culture shock of my life, American suburbia. Did you live in a pyramid? Did you ride a camel to school? These were real questions from my new peers, and it wasn't a sincere curiosity, but a mocking one. The Bengals' song, Walk Like an Egyptian, was popular, and what could have been a cultural bridge wasn't, because I was so caught up in the details of how obvious it was that the song didn't understand Egyptian culture at all. Cops in donut shops? What I would have given for a donut shop in Cairo. More like conscripted armed forces wearing all-black military uniforms, brandishing rusty Russian machine guns as they sleepily guarded the residences and businesses of prominent expats. That's what I saw cops doing in my neighborhood. I couldn't relate to any of my new peers in Litchfield. None of them had ever lived in fear of being hijacked on a flight to or from Cairo. Nobody knew who Arafat, Mubarak, or Gaddafi were. Nobody knew how lucky they were to drink water from the tap and be able to buy American food whenever they wanted to. After school, I'd walk the dogs in the park behind our house in Litchfield like some yearning bachelor who hopes the dog will get him a girl. I'm hoping the dogs will attract friends. But nobody goes outside to play in Phoenix. People don't gather at the park like they do in Madrid or Cairo. In fact, there's nobody outside at all. It's like nobody exists in this town. It's a cemetery with ranch houses for gravestones. I go home and watch talk shows and sitcom reruns as I try to decode American fashion, music, and humor. But I feel lonely with my graham crackers and homogenized milk watching Donahue and Oprah. I pine for Egypt, where I'd have friends. I think of all the fun times I had, all the fun times I thought I'd have. I project myself into some weird nostalgic future where my peak social moments are on repeat. We're on road nine eating ice cream. We're at the embassy club hanging out by the pool. We're at play rehearsal, cracking each other up. I replayed my friendship's greatest hits over and over, imagining their lives going on without me and getting jealous like a rejected ex. But I wasn't rejected. The path veered, and I didn't know what to do with my sadness. I found out the baby was dead inside of me at the 20-week checkup. There's no heartbeat on the ultrasound. School measurements indicate it stopped growing around 15 weeks. I have to wait five more days for the abortion to remove the demise, as the doctors call it. I've been carrying a dead fetus for a month. This haunts me, how life can harbor death. Are there other dead things inside me that my body clings to? When the path veers suddenly, the flights in my head, the fantastical imaginings of what could have been, and the flashbacks to all the losses... Their rate has exponentially increased over time, a double helix of pain and potential intertwining into the future. Potential leads to pain, leads to potential, leads to pain. And they merge into a cacophony that can either dull my senses into a monotone dread or inspire a melodic symphony of hope about the inevitability of cycles. I thought becoming a parent would ground me once and for all that parenting would be a kind of fix for my own childhood, for me to give and get the rooting down I've longed for, what I imagined as a comfort emerging from being tethered to a place and a role. Sometimes I'd rather be a scientist than an artist, to have confidence in measurements and conclusions. But I'm not someone who believes in endings, or maybe I believe in them too much to want to feel their impacts. 
I expect things will end abruptly. I yearn for slow builds and finely crafted culminations, but getting ripped away from comfort made me a time traveler. I may feel like home eludes me, but the truth is, I can make home anywhere. I just need to witness time stilled, the time I'm in, the present, and embody it once again. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to subscribe to this essay series or find me, Liz Hansen, you can do so at demisery.com. D-E-M-I-S-E-R-Y.com. Don't forget to be nice to yourself. Healing wishes to all.